Welcome to the Mojo Innovators podcast. Hello, I'm Jenny Bully. On today's podcast, we're talking about the pride of Saskatoon, Roberta Joan Anderson, otherwise known as Joni Mitchell. With me to talk about Joni's legacy via three significant moments in her career, Blue, the album that made her an icon, 1975's exploratory The Hissing of Summer Lawns, and the new perspectives of 2002's Travelogue are the writers Jim Irvin and Lucy O'Brien. Hello. Hello. Hello, Jen. (laughs) Of all the celebrated singer-songwriter albums of the 70s, Joni Mitchell's Blue set the benchmark in 1971. Why was Blue such a perfect storm, Jim? She was perfectly placed to make this record because she'd come out of the the hippie movement in Laurel Canyon. She had this... uh, incredibly unusual backstory that had got her there as a, as a singer and she was in turmoil she was feeling very thin-skinned and very vulnerable fame didn't quite agree with her she was uh, rattling through boyfriends <laughs> at the time and she had a lot to write about and it all perfectly condensed into this I'd say perfect record can you tell us a bit about that unusual backstory when she was nine to go back a little while, she did three things. She moved to Saskatoon uh, in Canada, which is part of what they call the Sea of Wheat. It's a sort of this area that's mm, a huge Paris. field yeah. of wheat and corn with towns dotted in, in between. Saskatoon's one of those. Pretty remote, pretty isolated. She remembers sitting in the window of her, of her house, sort of waving at the trains and dreaming of escape kind of thing, even at that mm. age. The same year, she contracted polio and she took up smoking. <laughs> At said, age nine? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. So the way she described it, she she was going to school one morning, she looked in a mirror and she had big bags under her eyes and she said, oh, you, you look like a grown-up today. And she had to sit down on the way to school and it hurt to get up again. And then the next morning she collapsed uh, with polio. Um, she was flown to a hospital in an air ambulance and she was told she'd never walk again. And she was determined to to get out of this place. And it was coming on Christmas, as the song says. And her mum bought a Christmas tree. And and she said she wasn't religious or anything. She didn't believe in in anything like that. But she sort of prayed to the God of the Christmas tree and sort of made a deal with it and said, Mm -hmm. um, you know, get me out for Christmas and I'll believe in you. I don't know whether she kept her side of the bargain, but um, uh, she, she did walk out. And I think that shows her incredible kind of, determination and sort of strength of mind but she said polio gave her a kind of gave her an inner life gave Mm. her this sense of her own inner thoughts and her power partly because she was lying in a hospital bed with nothing to do for weeks yeah self-examination would have come to her quite yeah and and then uh one day i mean it must have been a chilly um break period or something where they all went out to convalesce in the in the yard round a pond or something and 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 one of the girls helpfully passed around a packet of cigarettes and <laughs> and she said you know some of the other girls uh, threw up and coughed and spluttered but mm. she took one and she said one puff and my mind cleared Okay. <laughs> so she she was a devoted smoker from yeah. then on it she said it, it suddenly made everything kind of make sense to her and and uh, yeah, it's very early to develop that kind of sense of self as well, I think, isn't nine, it? isn't yeah. it? But um, it, obviously it was exacerbated by this this illness. So that was the mind that turned into a folk singer. She was already examining herself from, from early on. Sure. Plus she got this tremendous urge for going, as she said in, mm-hmm. in one song that didn't make it onto Blue. She had this real drive to move on and, and leave places and, and everything. And then, of course, the other big 
factor in her sort of creative awakening, if you like, was when she was 19, she went to art college and she lost her virginity to a guy called Brad McMath and mm. became pregnant straight mm. away, which is a bad break. Isn't it? Say, yeah. And um, she was pretty penniless and, and away, you know, away from home and, and she really couldn't afford to bring up a, a child. And also, of course, in those days, the stigma of being an unwed mother was, she said, close yeah, to being a murderer. Yeah. <laughs> so um, she was, and as she says in, in one of the songs on Blue Little Green uh, about writing lies home and all this kind of stuff, she was trying to keep it from from her, her family, but she, yeah. she had to sign the baby Kelly up for adoption. And that was a tremendous source of shame and guilt and depression and stuff, in, as you can imagine, in, in, yeah. in, in, in later years. So all those things were filtering into her work, and, and that does crop up on, on this album with Little Green. Yeah, it does. And that, um, and actually that backstory was unknown for decades, wasn't it? it wasn't a long time, until I think. The she, 90s, I think. I mean, obviously, yeah, look, she's singing about it in that song, if, you'd, if we'd only known. Mm. And once could, you know that... The, yeah, oh, it's, it really, it's heartbreaking it once, once you know that that's what that song's about. But, I mean, I suppose she told people who she knew and who were close mm-hmm. to. Um, and it did come out in the occasional interview, but for some reason nobody jumped on it. Mm. But, you know, later on, it, obviously, it, it. she said she she moaned that people said, oh, you only gave the baby up so that you could further your career kind of thing. Oof, she said, no, it was the... <clears throat> How trite. Yes. <laughs> in fact, it was the sort of opposite way around, that my career sprung out of that my sadness, you know, that yeah. the writing kind of started almost immediately after mm-hmm. that. Um, in fact, her when she married Chuck... Mitchell, whose yeah. name she took, um, her intent was to settle down with him and make enough money to um, get the baby back and, mm-hmm. and bring it up. But she said that uh, more or less the moment they were wed, he turned around and said he didn't want to bring up another man's child. So she felt slightly yeah, betrayed trapped, yeah. and trapped. And and that then was another reason to to move on and, and another thing that spurred her on to, um, to become a singer. Mm. And Chuck Mitchell is Richard on blue, isn't he? He's the that's right. Last, the last time, time I saw Richard, Richard. Is, is is dedicated to him or, or inspired by him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lucy. But why else is this considered such a confessional album? As if that weren't enough. She's um, an incurable romantic, and um, after the success of Song to a Seagull, Clouds, Ladies of the Canyon, she took a year off and she went mm. travelling, partly to explore, get her head together write, paint, just create. She really took the time to think through her feelings. She was splitting up with Graham Nash, Mm. um, her boyfriend. She was obsessed with James Taylor. She was always, and this was something she explored throughout her albums, always seeking love and trying to find love in its ideal form and writing about it in a way that was poetic and reflective. On Blue, she let herself be raw and honest. And that was quite unusual for a female singer-songwriter at the time to be not just be honest, but also allow herself to be the bad guy. So um, she's singing in River, River. yes. Mm. I'm selfish and I'm sad. And she's making life difficult for um, her lover, but she needs to keep moving on. So it's it's a remarkable album, not just for the, the lyrics, but also the way her music develops. 
And she started using the piano on Ladies of the, of the Canyon. And then, really, the, the piano came to the fore with Blue in a way that's just astonishing. So you have her vocals interacting with the music. And, like, for instance, in, in River, she's singing and trying to soar away with her voice. Yeah. Um, and then the piano is almost like pulling her down into the, into the waters. So she's already, she's kind of working with the music and using the music to really express mm -hmm. her feelings and what's going on in the lyrics. That song particularly is a tour de force for her voice, isn't it? That, the way, as you say, I, I would teach my feet to fly and that yes. sustained fly yes. is, embodies everything about flight and escape and freedom. It's, yeah. you know, it's yeah. remarkable. And that sort of trick that she uses, she really perfects on this record of, of singing a long note at the end of every line. She does it quite a lot. If you listen to Joni thinking of that, you realise how often she doesn't know how much of a sort of signature move it is for her. Just to draw out the last word of a line more than one would if you couldn't sing. Yeah. I think that's one reason why our songs are quite hard to cover as well, because yeah. they're, they are really um, expertly crafted and mm. specifically crafted for her voice. This is one of the other things uh, about her musicianship on this record is, uh, um, and as Lucy said, she starts playing mm. the piano. Last time I saw Richard, there's a minute of piano at the front, isn't there? Mm, yes. <laughs> it's a, a sort yes. of, so she starts with a solo, mm. you know. And also she's playing the dulcimer, which is rather unusual, yes. mm. uh, which she'd taken with her to Greece. And she wrote Carey in a Cave, famously. Do you know that story? Yes, that's right. Yeah. What was his yeah. name? Carey... Uh, he was some Erlitz Greek hippie, wasn't he? He, he, had was, a he was Canadian, cabin. actually. He was Canadian, oh. actually. But he was one of the group of hippies that were hanging out in, in, this, in this Greek town. And uh, he was a chef in the local bar. And That's apparently right. he used to fight. He was very truculent and used to get into mm. fights all the time. He lived uh, in a cave. And he lived in a cave. Yeah. So I think Joni obviously <laughs> felt, oh, I'll hang He's out with him. Me. He's yeah. safe. We've yeah. all been there. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we all want a caveman, don't we? So uh, th um, the other thing is is her strange uh, use of, of, of her Joni's strange chords, as she mm. called it. As she says, mm. she was making up her own way to play music. Yeah, and I think that I heard once I believe that it was partly to do with the polio that she can't form the chords oh, right. properly on a, on a left mm. hand so she would tune the guitar in different ways so she had the least amount of work to do with the left hand to form mm. the chords so that you know like um, Keith Richard sort of tunes in F is it or something on with five strings and he just yeah. has to play bar chords it's a similar sort of thing um, and the way she played the dulcimer was like that mm. on, on a lap with a sort of with, with a bar chord so um that sort of weakness, if you like, to, to her ability to play the stuff was actually made the music completely individual and, mm. and, and, and gave her real strength because she was doing stuff that other people go, what's she playing? And yeah. it's like, she, like, she, like Nick Drake. She didn't stuff. like yeah. easy resolutions, though, did she? she? She wanted to play around with the form and not do obvious pop chord progressions yeah. and not obvious melodies, hence using her voice in really interesting ways and using the guitar and the piano in really interesting ways. And she's mm. just edging into that part of her style later on, isn't yes. she? Like, like the, the hissing style where she yes, where it gets it, it, it gets very yes. kind of protean and, and, and different. Yeah. I think the, the, the thing about the the blue album is mm. almost perfect. I can't mm. think of a weak mm. moment. There's not a single moment on there I don't mm. enjoy listening to. And the overriding effect for me, when I first heard it, I was like 14 or something, and it made me really nostalgic for something I didn't even mm. know about. You know what mm. I mean? It, I, I think I said somewhere that, that River is the, the national anthem of the state of nostalgia. It, 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 it imparts a whole story to you that even if you 
even if it's not yours, it affects yes, you. Yes, absolutely. The whole the idea of skating back to Canada. Yeah. To, yes, yes. Yeah, and the Christmassy reference and all those kind of things. Even as a child, you can be um, nostalgic for Christmas and, 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 and you mm. get that, that feeling of it. And there are lots of little clues in, in the record to her own sort of depression at the time. There are seven songs that mention the word blue. Yeah. Either as a as a as a um, source of depression or as, or the, the colour, but it's very much a, an image that she she leans on, and she said at the time that she was incredibly thin skinned when she made that record. If she said if anyone approached yeah. me, then I would burst into tears. Mm. Yeah. So she must have been on the edge of something. It's such so. a contrast with um, uh, Ladies of the Canyon, um, which is so lush and bright, and you can you can get the sense of L.A. and the ladies of L.A. with all their trinkets and shawls and lace, and that's yeah. a very very kind of feminine album and then she moves into blue it's such a stark contrast um, it's almost like in traveling and moving away she starts to really take herself seriously as an artist because she says at the beginning when she was first playing folk clubs it was really just to make some money to fund her art and just a bit of a laugh um, but the more um, she developed her music through those early albums it's almost like she arrived at blue and that was where for the first time it feels like her her vision if you like is fully formed there mm. I think it's funny that she also says, I'm going to make a lot of money and quit this crazy scene. Yes, she did, didn't she? Um, You know, she was already thinking of, oh, that's enough of this. Uh, It took her a while to get there. What I like as well about Blue is there are contrasts. So, yes, she's really exploring that feeling of being depressed and, like, the the title track itself is is quite dark Um, and there's hints of it's meant to be about um, uh, James Taylor and his his heroin addiction and kind of thinking about the impact of that and the rather devastating personal cost there is, not just with him, but also her and and the way she's kind of locked in with him in that world. But then you have these amazing moments of brightness that she can create. She's quite translucent sometimes with California, even Mm. though it's um, a song that's quite, well, very reflective. It's also upbeat you know and yeah. the Kerry comes back doesn't he the, yes yes the redneck on the Grecian R yes that's right and you know sitting in a park in Paris France and and kind of there's a sense of reportage that this is the beginning of her really developing that observational side to her songwriting mm-hmm. um, and really capturing the conversational cadences of the time and and fragments of speech mm-hmm. and what's going on in the news as well as what's going on inside yeah. What Jim was saying about nostalgia earlier, songs like My Old Man, is she harking back to a kind of rose-tinted, you know, hippiedom that's maybe over Well, that was the, the, yeah, the, the Graham Nash period, wasn't it? Mm. And Our House and all that kind of stuff. Um, that was really her, yeah, being nostalgic for, mm. for, for that. And then, um, oh, what's the other one where she says, I made my baby cry? That was, that was about leaving him, I think, wasn't it? River, yeah. Uh, that's on River, yes, of yeah. course. And... I love the domestic detail that she puts in, in, in this thing, you know, the bed's too big, the frying pan's too yeah. wide yes. on that. And, <laughs> yes. and, and then later on, um, uh, on Richard, when you know, he, he bought <laughs> her, she her in a, a coffee, coffee percolator. percolator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's great on the appliances. Yeah. She's very she observant. very good on appliances. And but then she when was, she gets to yeah. life with James Taylor, it's acid yeah. booze and ass needles, guns and grass. <laughs> 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 so, mm, that was and a then tr- tricky I, relationship. all I want, knitting his sweater. Yeah, you know, yeah. Which, and of course, by that point, you know, the good life had 
pretty much crumbled into heroin and excess, hadn't it? So it's, it's strange, isn't it? Her her obsession with James Taylor because clearly he was a a, a wrongen at that point, and he didn't last, he didn't stick around very no. very long after I, his own success. I think it? it shows her vulnerability, and she's she, and I think what's great about this is she's exploring what it feels to be a woman and be really vulnerable mm. with yeah. a man like that that you're absolutely obsessed by mm-hmm. but um, you know deep down that this is going to be bad for you but yeah. you still <laughs> keep going I mean, there. she's an artist of course she's a painter and it's that whole yes. thing about you know nakedness in art is yeah. its own defence isn't it yes but, yes in a way of working mm. out her feelings the, the nice song about James Taylor is Case of You of course which is a yes. fantastic song mm. and okay. and it feels a little like one of his songs too I think melodically mm. It, 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 you can imagine him yeah, singing it right, yeah. and um, I think he remembered her writing it in the log cabin they were holed up in right. um, he was nodding off in the room <laughs> next door and she was writing Case of You and 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 <laughs> And he plays guitar on uh, on blue, doesn't he? As well, I think. Yes, um, that's right. And Stephen Stills is on there. Yeah, too. but Case of You is one of those those kind of great love songs with a simple metaphor. That's one thing about this record is how simple it is, or deceptively simple, if you like. Mm. It's, she becomes much more flowery and poetic later on, doesn't she? she and, does. and on this one, uh, you know, as, as you said, Lucy, she's being mm. very direct and being very conversational, yes. and you can imagine her writing these as letters to people or saying it on the phone, you know, complaining yes. to a mate about yeah. about, the, about the, some of these mm. things. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's got this universal appeal because, like I said, if even if you hadn't gone through the things she's going through, you recognise you can, yeah, the tone, you recognise the emotions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Everyone's had a river they want to Certainly skate have. Yeah. Or a canal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings us nicely <laughs> to the mid-70s, where uh, our folk icon embraces jazz improvisation and harmonic experiment, which harks back to what Jim was saying about her open tunings. So when The Hissing of Summer Lawns came out in 1975, Joni wrote a liner note for the first time, explaining that this record is a total work conceived graphically, musically, lyrically and accidentally as a whole. Which in itself is quite revolutionary for a pop star, hasn't it, Jim? Yes, I mean, obviously she was aware of sort of concept albums and things generally, mm. but there's, she's had several moves. I mean, I think in a way Blue was a concept record. Sure, yeah. all, all of her albums, to some extent, are snapshots, a diary kind mm. of places in her life, aren't they, that she's focused into an album. And this one, however, I think is the first time, as she said elsewhere, that it was the first time she wrote songs about other people particularly. So she says these songs are lots of portraits. And it was the first mm-hmm. time, it was the first step into making music that sounded like her paintings in a way. It's a little bit more pop art. It's a, The melodies are more sort of protean. It's quite hard to sing along to this album. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a bit about the players, because for Court and Spark she'd used these... She'd used of... Tom Scott's LA Express, a, yeah. a band that she she hooked up with and made the Miles of Isles live album mm. with them, and then they're on Court and Spark. And Court and Spark was her most successful record commercially. That's right, yeah. So it was a big hit. So there was a quite a... Uh, obviously there was a sort of... Um, uh, an implied pressure to to, to follow that up, um, which she seems to ignore. <laughs> to ignore <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, she said that I rather loved that she was moving away from the hit department to the art department. Yes, yeah. yes. And did so for quite a while yeah. after that. <laughs> she certainly yeah. did. I mean, and, and what's innovative about this record is this ability to go... I mean, it's it's genre fluid, this record, isn't it? It, 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 is. it, yeah. it doesn't have any any particular kind of landing stage it's it's got kind of smooth jazz on it it's got mm. rock and roll on it it's got brundy drumming it's got an acapella song at the end mm. uh, it's all over the shop and that's her 
I can remember hearing that, uh, the, the, the lyric in Jungle Line uh, mm. that ends in the phrase, mouthpiece spit, and thinking, right, she's taken us somewhere new now. This is the first time I'd kind of felt, I think maybe apart from Van Morrison, but the first time I'd felt, here's a poet at work. Mm. It's different from Dylan or something. It's much more painterly and, and expressive in a different kind of way. I think one of the reviews when it came out said, read it and then listen to it. That the, po- that the words are kind of better than the music in some respect. I don't think that's entirely fair. Yeah. yeah, but but I can see that because the, the, the words are fantastic on this record. Lucy, the jun- talking of the jungle line, how does mm. that relate to the cut the artwork on the front? So she's referencing Henri Rousseau, who was a post-impressionist painter, French mm. painter, who had this, um, what was called, I always think it's a bit of a dodgy term, primitive style, or some would call innocent art. So it was quite childlike, very bright, very vivid, and he was very inspired by, he used to go to the, he never actually went to Africa, but he went to mm. the botanical gardens in Paris. And, <laughs> good enough. And he used to <laughs> use that, thing. yeah, yeah, you know, well, <laughs> sort of like that, and used to bring that in his paintings of the jungle. So she was using him as a reference point and also for the album cover as well with the the artwork. And this is the track that has the the drummers of Burundi, a field recording, plus she's experimenting with Moog um, synth and um, experimenting with vocal overdubs, guitar overdubs. And it's a really, really compelling track. And again, an example of the way the music is demonstrating that meaning of something organic, something rhythmic. On the album cover, we've got Beverly Hills in the background, and then right in the yeah. foreground, we've got the um, kind of African snake men. Mm. <laughs> she'd seen this bit of photojournalism in National Geographic, hadn't she, with this Amazonian? I was like the mud, the mud men or something, wasn't it? That, that kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, they were, uh, you know, a, a tribe under threat. Right, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the tribe yeah. who'd had the yes, you know, motorway ploughed through their territory. Yeah. But that, there was a photograph of these hunters carrying a, a python. Yes, and, I think, and that's yes. the thing that she transposed in ink. And I think that's a theme that's very important to her is that um, contrast between nature, nature and the urban, and the destruction of an urban society, and kind of yeah. also developing that metaphor in. in even within that song, there's so many layers, aren't there? Mm-hmm. Um, she's sort of looking at the music industry as well and how that sort of urbane commercialism kind of corrupts or deracinates um, power and kind of using the example of jazz musicians and the way um, their work is kind of compromised and and um, lessened by that commercialism and also through the use of drugs and that's the thing yes, that the comes poppy up. snake in the dressing room yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was the verse that, that turned turned my head as a as a kid. I didn't quite get it then, but I knew it was good. Yeah. Yes. And yes. and the, the you know, the poppy wreath on a soldier's tomb, the poppy right. snake in the dressing room, yeah. poppy poison, poppy tourniquet. Mm. That yeah. that repetition is it, it sort of hammers it home very very gently, if you like, and uh, it, it is a fantastic uh, image of the uh, of the jungle line also being the drugs trade. Yes, yes exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And she's she's always so sceptical of the music industry and um, has an angle on that, and that's something she returns to, doesn't she, every so often? Yeah, it's, um, a, it's a real theme, isn't it, that yes. kind of artistic integrity? And, yes. I mean, presumably yes. she felt, you know, that pressure on her own work. Uh, yes. I th- uh, as I said, she, she resisted the temptation to make a follow-up to Court and Spark, and I think this was... Uh, a freedom record, having played with the band as well uh, on the uh, the, the Court and Spark tour, mm. um, she was really exploring that use of of 
of the music as a bed for her own thoughts in a slightly different way to how she, mm. she would have written in the past. And there are some very complicated changes and chord sequences and things on this record. There's a couple where yeah. the the melody doesn't even seem to kind of fit the what's going on underneath. There's some very sort of strange, and obviously done on purpose, um, some, some, some strange yeah. things. She's really experimenting with a, a more abstract way of pulling things out. Mm, she yes. said uh, also that, that, because it wasn't terribly popular when it came out, this record, and her excuse yeah, was... Oh, because I'm writing, a, I'm saying you in the songs, and people react badly to that. They didn't want her to write in the third person, yeah. did they? They wanted more. <laughs> or, but they think they're they're hearing about themselves, you know. So oh, I think it's a bit right. of a stretch, um, Joni. I think it was more the fact they couldn't sing along to it. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. I think it was the the um, the layering of all those different music genres. Mm. But it's interesting how it's really stood the test of time, and now people can hear it. They, I remember seeing something in the New York Times recently where they said. Didn't really dig her around that time, but I get it now. Yeah, and I think that's the thing is that record now people because genres are so much more fluid these days. Um, we can hear it and understand it mm. in a way that maybe in the yeah. mid seventies people just oh it yeah, just seemed right. really alien. I can also remember being a bit sniffy about um, Adam and the Ants and Bow Wow Wow when they came along because I'd, I'd already heard the, the Burundi, Burundi drumming, drumming. Yeah. <laughs> on this record. Right. And Paul Simon. Hello. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, there, there, there's her being an innovator. You know, she'd done Absolutely. it years before everybody else copped it. And some of the production techniques are quite sort of pioneering too, aren't they, with the overdubs and the... And the use yes. of the synth and, yeah, and stuff, yeah, yeah. Mm. There's some there's some some really inventive moments on this, and of course she was dating John Guerin, the drummer at the mm. time as well. So there's a lot of kind of really subtle rhythms and things going on. Um, mm. I think he co-wrote one of the songs, and this is a real sense of her as an artist and a and a and a dancer and a skater. It's got all those things yeah. in mm. in the fabric of the music yeah. um, mm. rather than as it sort of explicitly in the song as it had been mm. in the past. I mean, she's very good at getting, you know, Wayne Shorter. Lots of, you know, name musicians are on this record, but she always manages to use people to her agenda in a, in a way that's... You know, yeah. really successful. They don't yeah. overwhelm her, do they? Um, you could argue that with, mm. say, Court and Spark, she invented Steely Dan. That was a kind of mm. sophisticated, mm, yeah. jazzy yes. pop record Very that true. gave yes. them permission to do what what, mm, what they yeah. did, I think, the next year. Mm. So that kind of... She was she was definitely well thought of by the, the, ja the yeah. jazz community mm. um, as someone writing stuff that you could get mm. your teeth into. And what about the characters on this thing? So she's got some interesting female characters and I feel with this album she's taking quite an objective look at what it means to be female. And don't forget this is the mid-70s again where the roles are much more restricted and um, on Don't Interrupt the Sorrow she sings of Anima Rising and it's interesting that at that time she was uh, she bought some land in that on that West Coast Highway between LA and San Francisco and she would have been aware of the Esalen Institute at Big Sur, which was all about exploring transpersonal psychology. So I think she was interested in um, the elemental side of being feminine, but didn't necessarily identify with the women's movement. She mm. was always quite an individual or an individualist. Yeah, she always resisted the tag feminism, yeah, yeah. didn't she? And she looked at it. So the title track, she's thinking about a poor woman who's, um, it's almost like Stepford Wives scenario. Yes. The, appliances rear, poor, yeah. <laughs> the appliances yeah. rear their head again, um, where um, she sees marriage as a trap. 
and she really jealously guards that space she's created for herself there um, as an artist. And she sings about that as well in, in Don't Interrupt the Sorrow, um, mm-hmm. really staking her claim as an artist. But she, she always has always argued that her music isn't gendered, that mm-hmm. she purposefully wants to be seen as a songwriter and an artist without the word female in front of it because she sees that as more empowering. Well, especially in the 70s. Yes, I imagine that was yes. But I have she to was say, fighting against Rolling Stone calling her old lady of the year. Yes, yes. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. It's a tricky one, though, because as a, as a woman listening to her music, it took me quite a while to come round to her. I admired her, but I didn't necessarily love the music for a while. She always seemed to be this incredibly self-sufficient person, a bit like Patti Smith, that, oh, she doesn't need other women. And it was hard to find a way in to her music. I don't um, think she just didn't need other, she didn't need other men. Either. She didn't really other, other people. Beings, yeah. <laughs> there is something yeah. kind of icy and autistic about her if you, if you yes, want yeah. to see that. Yes. Um, and, and she had a high opinion of herself, definitely. She always mm-hmm. sort of said there's mm-hmm. only... Only Dylan that I'm I can't be yes. put up against. Yes. And that didn't seems um, fair enough. didn't David <laughs> yeah. Crosby said she's about as modest as Mussolini <laughs> uh, in an affectionate way, of yeah. course. But um, and and I think with you know that that's all fair enough. She was so ahead of the pack, wasn't yes. she, in, in what yes. she was doing? Yeah. And and this record was her really kind of taking off. Yes. Remember, if you want to hear any of the Joni music we talk about on this podcast, head over to the Mojo Innovators podcast playlist at Apple Music. So this week on Mojo Innovators, we're talking about Joni Mitchell, who in the later part of her career started to revisit her earlier work from an older and wiser perspective. Uh, So Jim, we'd already heard her in an orchestral setting. The song Paprika Plains is orchestral, isn't it? And then in 2000, she recorded uh, both sides now. But 2002's Travelogue was something different again, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, this album grew out of both sides now, which was mm. ostensibly her doing covers of her favourite old standards, yeah. which would have been, you know, kind of Nelson Riddle type arrangements and and, uh, and, and those sort of things. And, and But most people agreed that the highlight was the title track. Her singing both sides now, yeah. 40 years on or whatever it was, was incredibly powerful. Mm. Um, and gave a whole new aspect to the to the song. I think she did Case of You on that record That's as well. Right. Yes. Yeah, so just yes. those two yeah. songs, isn't it? And, and they're both great performances. So, obviously, the, ne- the, the next obvious thing to do was, well, let's do a whole o- album of my stuff. Mm. And really, only Joni would do that. Maybe Bob Dylan, who who else is... I mean, Kate Bush did it with the director's cut, didn't she? Yeah. But there's very few people who who have got a big enough deep enough catalogue to to revisit in that way and for it to be meaningful. I mean, I I can't imagine Paul McCartney doing an album of his best of his sort of 70s stuff. He'd be hard-pressed to find the the, the kind of songs that you could do this with. Orchestral versions. Yes, orchestral versions. There there has to be some depth to the song to to, to arrange it with an orchestra. Indeed, and that's the thing. I can't think of anyone else that that would have had a a catalogue that could have suited this. I mean, and it's a vast record as well. Oh, it's huge. It's two CDs. It would be three. It would be a triple album. Mm. It goes on forever. It does. But it's, um, you know, so it's an amazingly kind of courageous thing to do. I mean, maybe tellingly, it was one of her least successful records. Well, I mean, it's very dense. It's It's very very difficult to... once you get into it, it's so beautiful. Mm. It sounds fantastic. Her singing on it is amazing. 
in a I, completely yeah, different way to yeah, her previous her voice style. Has changed tremendously over the years. Yeah, the race, well, it? I mean, you know, she'd, she'd got older. Course, she'd yeah. been still been smoking yeah. since she was nine. <laughs> you know, it sounds a bit nicotine ravaged, but uh, but beautifully. It, but yeah, fantastic. The vulnerability is 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 a new thing in a, in a, in a way for her. I mean, obviously, it's there mm. on 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 some of the previous albums, like. Turbulent indigo and things, but not in her voice particularly. Not so much, yeah. but here it's just it's just stunning. I think in, in, on the songs where it really works, like her version of Woodstock is incredible uh, on this. And um, uh, let's have three cheers for Vince Mendoza who did all the arrangements because mm, right. they are incredible. Yeah, they are. And it, again, it really huge job. It re- a huge mm. job. It must take it ages. <laughs> and 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 it veers from there's sort of hints of jazz every now and then. There's a sort of a big band one, but there's sort of more like kind of Gil Evans sort of work mm. with Miles Davis mm. in places. So it's got this sort of semi-classical sense to it. And and again, some of the arrangements, they don't sound like anything else. They're no, not, they they're not classical, they're mm. not jazz. They're, what no, are they? They're, they're just odd kind of tone. Yeah, just sort of huge yeah. walls of, of sound. Yeah. I think it's a stunning record. It should be on vinyl, by the way, if anyone's listening from, from uh, Warner's or, or whatever. Oh, I don't think it's Warner's that are stopping the Joni catalogue from being... Before we come to that, uh, Lucy, which songs work best for you on Travelogue? Um, Like Jim says, I I really love um, Woodstock, and I think what I what I love about that song and also the Circle Game, Hajira, you know, in Hajira she sings, "I see something of myself in everyone." There's a sense of her revisiting all this former work and um, reflecting on it again, so that so you get new layers to the songs Mm. and. It's like musical memoir. She's kind of doing it in musical form. And um, last time I saw Richard, um, that seems to have a real force to it when she sings, you know, cynical and drunk and boring someone in a dark cafe, you know, almost like this is is where we are now, you (laughs) know, at 60-odd. No, not that I'm 60, but... um, uh, She was. She was. was. And and you get the feeling there's some humour there as well, Mm. some humour at kind of being the grumpy old woman. I think Um, on that song you get the feeling this is like an actress doing a one-woman show in a way. Oh, yes, the, yes, the, yeah. yes a, would work beautifully in that. Yeah, and, and this is Joni on Broadway, this album, really, isn't it? It, it is a bit, yeah. the, 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 There are hints of sort of song yeah, time yeah, in there exactly. and that yeah. stuff, yeah. It does kind of change a lot of the songs into show tunes. Yeah, almost, I wondered if she'd uh, sequenced it in any particular way. I, I listened to it quite hard to see if there was any sort of thread, the way mm. she'd done it, but I don't think there is. She tried that later on, didn't she, with one of the box sets of, mm. of, of, of providing oh, a kind yes. of short story yes. with, with, with mm. each with each album. Um, that seemed a little contrived. Yeah, yeah but yeah. you can see of, of, how her work lends itself to that because yeah. quite often yes. it is the thread of a single person. It yes. is the life story of this of this artist. Yes. And I think yes. for that reason that Travelogue does concentrate mostly on later songs, doesn't it? Because they're mm. the ones with the compositional depth. Yes. And, yes. Well, it, and it's interesting yes. to see what she leaves off this record. Obviously, she'd, yeah. she'd had those two on the previous album, but she doesn't really do you know, quite a lot of her, a lot of her hits are, no, are, are on this no. album. Um, she picks the, some of the more obscure things, but they they react beautifully. Yeah, um, the the only bits I'm not so sure about there are sometimes little bits of musical theatre um, <laughs> for the roses, for instance. the The original had a real light touch, but this version is a slightly feels a little heavy handed. I like the um, Bernard Hermanness of that though. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's got it's got that real. It opens with that really good, <laughs> doesn't it? You go, oh, it's sort of chilling, you know. <laughs> but so, yeah. It, you what could, happened? Yeah, um, yeah. No, it's it, it's. Uh, in fact, that was one that I I just went. This is incredible because it, it's so different from the original. It, yeah. it becomes another thing. 
But yeah. uh, if you're a fan of the original, I'm sure to imagine it's yeah. quite, it's quite yeah. startling. Yeah. I mean, yeah. some of it is quite jarring. Yeah. It's an yeah. experience I mean, it's... all unto itself. And yes. that, that may have been the point. I don't know quite why she did so many songs on this record. That's the interesting mm. bit. Mm. The, it, well, you've booked the orchestra, you know. You well, know yeah, that. but it, it's, mm. I mean, it must have been incredibly expensive and, and taken a long time to do. But presumably mm. there was some sense of it being a closing statement. Yes. Um, I mean, wasn't that meant to be the, her last album at that point? Yeah. And then a bit later on, oh, well, actually, I'm going to come out with a new album, mm. Shine. That was 2007. But then that really was, I, I feel like that that Shine is, is her last um, because she's not mm. been so well recently, has she? Yeah, she was yeah. supposed to make two albums with the Starbucks deal, wasn't mm. she? But it, 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 mm. it, that was the only one that she did. Yeah. But yeah, I think at the time she said this was this was the end. She was being very grumpy about the, the, the music business, wasn't she, at the yes. point? And, and yes. said nobody knew what to do with her. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And and was sort of you know proved right when this album flopped because I mean <laughs> I, I do Very think it is to. is one of the greatest Thank pieces you. of work that anyone's ever done in some respects. It's not a record I listen to a, a great deal, but whenever I do, it reminded me a bit of like um, Joanna Newsom's "Have One on Me." Do you know mm-hmm. that record? That's a triple yeah. album of, yeah. that, uh, of uh, stuff. And, yeah. and and when you dive into that, it's astonishing. If you're in the right mood, I'd say Travelogue. If you're feeling reflective. Lie down on the floor, put it on <laughs> for a week, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just Not lie there, and you know maybe yeah. doze off a little bit, and just let the mood overtake you because I think that's mm. the way to listen to yeah. it. It's it, not one that you can just kind of yeah. put on while you're doing the washing up. And you can't you know. listen to it on the school run, can you? This no, <laughs> no. about your school. I believe Pete Townsend is a big fan, which is telling. I think someone else of this record. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And I think it is one of those those records that if you're in the business, you can only stand at the foot of this and, and look up it. and, and yeah. wonder. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think one of the interesting things that it brings up, this kind of act of curation, is that with Joni, you know, there is no anthology. No. There are, you know, she's very controlling about her back catalogue. Mm. This is her way of re-representing re- mm. You know her back catalogue. Well, yes, her later mm. years would, would would have been taken up with sort of curation of of the whole thing, haven't yeah. they? So she's done these box sets. It's interesting. I think that her last four albums are all got different self portraits on. Mm. She's doing mm. all this kind of, in a way, closing down, kind of focusing everything into into one kind of thought about and and this is me. Yeah. <laughs> mm. And and yeah. Props to her. To, that's that's fantastic she's, to, to, she's to thinking, be able to do that. Yeah, thinking about the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, none of these... I remember interviewing Dusty Springfield and she used to get really irate at um, the way Phillips would always... Um, package up her stuff with these sort of naff greatest hits mm. collections and Joni seems to have avoided that. But one thing she yeah. avoids furiously is rarities and, you know, there's no demos out there, there's no, you know, it's really difficult to find those little, like the recent mm. Rolling Thunder review film, she's there playing yeah. Coyote yeah. with McGuinn and Dylan. That's think, right, well, yeah. That's never come out. Why's that never come yeah. out? Because she doesn't. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah. I mean, there are things like there's Urge for Going, which should have been on Blue. Mm. Um, there's another song that should have been on Blue called Hunter that's never that's never right. surfaced at all. So um, that's unusual. I mean, presumably uh, it, when she dies, that stuff like that will, will creep out. I mean, the Bowie industry is ridiculous, isn't it? Oh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. How many live albums can you, can you throw at the world? I don't, yeah. know, I don't know what's yeah. going on there. Yeah. You know, if she's got any sense, she'll make some provisions in her I'm sure she already yeah. has. I'm sure she has. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yeah Joni, if you're listening, I'd love uh, Travelogue on vinyl. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd like to hear the version of Raised on Robbery that she made 
with Neil Young in the Tonight's the Night session. Okay, we just put yeah. our shopping list in there. Oh, right, yes. Cosmic order these things. Uh, listen, that's all we've got time for today, but huge thanks to Jim Irvin and to Lucy O'Brien. Thank, Thank you. you. You can hear all the music discussed on this podcast by visiting the Mojo Innovators playlist on Apple Music. If you've enjoyed it, please rate and subscribe. Uh, next time, Danny Eccleston will be here talking about Miles Davis with the trumpeter Sheila Maurice Gray and Jazz FM's Chris Phillips. The producer was Simon Barnard. I'm Jenny Bully. Thanks for listening. <laughs>